Dear congregation, is there anything more wonderful than when a soul comes to the Lord Jesus? It gives joy to that person and to all God's children who witness it. And there is joy in heaven when any one sinner repents. And yet that way to Jesus is often perplexing. And from our side, it is a way with difficulties and obstacles. There are hindrances around us, such as what people might say, or what people might inwardly think, or perhaps what people have said can be a great hindrance. There are also hindrances within us. There can be confusion about what it may mean or feel like to come to Jesus. Or the whispers of Satan or our own heart that we could never come to the Lord Jesus. We've sinned too much. Or it's simply not for a person like us. Or perhaps if I were to come to Jesus, what if he would turn me away? Or that everything in your life has been simply imagined or in vain. You've heard of such things. And so there can be all these hurdles, these obstacles, these difficulties within or without on the pathway to the Lord Jesus. And yet I say, congregation, is there anything more glorious than when such obstacles or hindrances are overcome and we come to the most blessed place on the face of the earth, which is at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And to hear, as the man in our text passage heard from the very lips of Jesus, as you can read in the words of our text, Luke 5, really this whole narrative from verse 16 to 26, and I'll read at this time, verses 20 through 24. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts, whether is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say rise up and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine own house. Thus far the words of our text. Our theme looking to the Lord tonight is, Faith breaks through. Faith breaks through. We have six points, and we'll give them to you as we go along briefly. The first is a scene of power because we read in the words of our passage that there was power to heal them. Verse 17, notice at the end of that verse, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. What had happened? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ's children had just begun his Galilean ministry. He had been baptized and during that baptism, the Holy Spirit had descended like a dove upon the Lord Jesus. The heavens had been opened and the voice of God had proclaimed the Lord to be God's own Son. What a spectacular beginning to Christ's earthly ministry there in Galilee. But right on the heels of that, the Lord Jesus had been driven into the wilderness in order to meet with Satan and with his temptations. The Holy Spirit had driven him to do that. That was a requirement and a requisite here for him to engage in his ministry. He needed to be made like us in all things sin accepted. And so he was tempted at all points like as we are. And also in terms of his mediatorial work, he needed to meet with him who had bound the strong man 
And as he meets with him, he conquers Satan, at least within the capacity of this temptation. Satan was silenced by the word of God, and Christ did not give an inch to Satan. And Satan was forced to withdraw for a season, as you can read about. And fresh from this interchange with Satan, he ascends the pulpit in Nazareth and he proclaims, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty those that are bound, to heal the brokenhearted, to give recovering of sight to the blind, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And from this moment on, the Lord Jesus Christ was doing exactly that as it had been prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. And many from all around Galilee, as well as the whole of Israel, they came for to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so, children, that the place where he was on this particular day was full to capacity. The house where he was, the people were pressing around the door. And we are thankful with a good attendance here tonight. And I'm sure you love it when church is full. But imagine children and young people, every single spot in this church was full. And not only that, but there were chairs in the aisles and maybe even people, as I heard on one occasion, Many decades before, the church was so packed, people sat up on the podium. And not just that, but people crowding in around the door so as to hear, to catch a few words. What an occasion that would be. And we read something interesting. I don't know if you saw it, but in verse 17, it says that it came to pass on a certain day he was teaching and there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by. They had come from all over Israel and they were there. Not so much to receive a blessing, no, actually not at all, but to test him. Who was this teacher? Was what he said true? Did it pass the standard of the Pharisees, the scribes, and so on? But all the while, while they were sitting by with their critical ears, we read this remarkable truth. And I hope it doesn't escape us. The power of the Lord was present to heal them. What an amazing thing. What is happening? Well, in order to understand this, you need to read verse 16, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, in his human nature, he needed prayer. And he needed that communion with his Father in his human nature. And in order to fulfill the law, in order to live a perfect life, he also had habits of prayer. And he sought the face of his Father in his human nature. As he lived our life, people of God, over again. And it was as he was in communion with his Father that this power of which we read was tangible and sensible. Also in his ministry, also in his teaching, also in his healing. You see, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, he experienced what we read of, for example, in many places, but for example, in Psalm 18, it is God that girdeth me with strength. In his human nature, the Lord Jesus was girded by his Father with the strength needed for his ministry. And the question comes to us, if the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who was sinless, who was holy, harmless, and undefiled, if he needed prayer, don't you and I need that communion, that close communion, that sweet communion with the Lord? Is it your experience to live apart from God is death? When you, child of God, backslide, you wander from the Lord like a lost sheep. Do you sense it? Do you know it? If it's right, you do. That not only your power leaves you, your strength leaves you, your hope leaves you. 
All these things so depend on the Lord and on fellowship with Him and communion with Him. Is it your desire in sweet communion, Lord, with Thee, I constantly abide? Obviously, once engrafted into the vine, there is that abiding in Christ, but is that also your experience? Is that your desire? Do you wish for that? Do you long for that? Are you like that dry and thirsty land that needs refreshing rain and you cry out when it's been a long time since the Lord was near and dear and precious to your soul? When you, perhaps not even through sin or backsliding per se, but, be, but, but in the duties of life, in the burdens of life, you find your own weakness and perhaps in a week of preparation, you feel it especially. You prepare yourself as the Lord has called you to do so. You examine yourself by the light of God's word. You are keenly aware of your shortcomings, your failings. Perhaps you feel weaker than ever. Well, my friend, is it not to come with all your need and with all your weakness? all your shortcoming to him who alone can help in time of need to that throne of grace remember it is exactly what it is called a throne of grace whereby we may draw near to find help mercy in time of need well as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed there was this power that was in evidence with him and around him for to hear. And yet the Pharisees and the scribes were just sitting by. What is that? When there is power with the Lord Jesus Christ to heal, to recover lost souls, to just sit by, and these were religious men, highly religious men, experts in the law. Oh, what fearful words these are. They were sitting by. May the Lord keep us from that. And yet how often that is, just sitting by, just spectators, just watching it all, but detached from it inwardly. Oh, my friend, if that is you tonight, just a spectator, what an awful thing it is to have the power of the Lord so nearby. Nigh unto thee is the word, the Bible says. And yet to have no need, no sense of need. Which is congregation, which brings us to our second point. Because besides a scene of power, we have here a scene of paralysis. A scene of power and a scene of paralysis. Look. At our text once again. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy. This man, children, was paralyzed. Likely from the waist down. He couldn't stand. He couldn't walk. If he had to go anywhere, he needed to be transported. He needed to be brought. He needed to be carried. Back in this day, nowadays it's quite a bit different. We're thankful for many modern means whereby people with various deficits, various paralyses, or whatever it may be, they can still uh, get around, but not, not so in Bible times. They were wholly dependent on others. And so this man's life, if you could look upon him, he was a picture of powerlessness. He couldn't walk, he couldn't stand, he couldn't get where he might want to go. Of his own accord, he couldn't make it to the temple. He couldn't go to the synagogue. He was limited. And, and what, what an impoverished life this would be. A life of suffering. A life of limitation. Perhaps a life of loneliness as well. This is not how God made us at the first. This man is really an emblem of, of suffering. And of misery. 
Of course, it was not his fault, at least there's nothing in the text to to read of this, but it's a picture, it's a scene of paralysis, something that has come into our world and into our lives because of our fall in Adam. Again, I I, I stress here that it's not this man's own particular fault in this instance, but paralysis has come into our souls and into our lives, limitations, Because of sin, because we have left God. God with whom we communed in the Garden of Eden and Adam, our federal head. We walked with him. We talked with him in the cool of the day. How this man would have been to those around him an emblem of of, of misery. A picture of what the fall has done. And how much more not to the Lord Jesus Christ when finally, and we'll get to that, he comes there and lies before the eyes of the Savior, a picture of what man has become because of his sin. And you know, there's much in life that can make us face our limitations, our paralysis, our impotence, our immobility. People of God, sometimes in a week of preparation, you feel this immensely. You think of that table spread next Lord's Day, and you wonder how you can get there. Uh, You you feel there's no way. You feel like your your spiritual legs are, are paralyzed. Sure, that may not be every time, but it can be. Perhaps there's someone here today that feels that acutely. But all of us, when we think about it, and especially when we think of our sin, we, we feel, don't we? We sense our limitations. Of ourselves, we can't get there. By ourselves, we can't get there. Left to ourselves, there's no way. But congregation, one thing this man, this paralyzed man has, which is a great gift, and we don't want to step over this too quickly, is this man had friends. He had four friends. What a gift spiritual friendship is. Even one friend. If you have one true friend who's a friend of your soul, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, what a spiritual gift that is. And sometimes I think that in our days with so much media, there's still that loneliness. Where, where people don't connect at the deepest level. Now, these five men, the four men who carried this paralyzed men, they were bound together in the bundle of life by faith. We read that because the Lord Jesus, he says that he saw their faith. And so God had worked in these men by his Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly how but so as to give them true faith. And this faith brought them together. And this faith also made them reach out into the life of this needy man. And faith does that. Faith does many things. But faith also has that horizontal dimension whereby we care for one another. We care for other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound together in the bundle of life with one another. And we make their needs our concern and our care, if it's right. Especially spiritual needs. And especially if it's someone with limitations, someone who cannot offend for themselves as they might wish to. What does the Bible say? Bear ye one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. This is exactly what these men do. And they take each a corner of this man's mat. And to Jesus they will go. They must have heard that the Lord Jesus was in this area. And they have this determination. And they're united in it. This our friend. With all his deficits. With all his paralysis. He must go to Jesus. And so there they go. Each taking a corner. And they bring this paralyzed man to the Lord Jesus. A scene of power, a scene of paralysis, but thirdly, and instructively, a scene of 
persistence. Because look at our text once again. Verse 18, And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. That means these four were heading towards that house of which they heard the Lord Jesus was there. And as they come closer, they see the crowd. They see the multitude. And I just picture it this way. I'm sure you do too, children. There they come with their friend. They have to get to Jesus. And so maybe they ask people, could, could you move aside? Could we, could we get in? And they try, and maybe a few people squirm kind of to the side, but they can't get in. And so they deliberate together. What should we do? Uh, where should we go? What needs to happen? Is there any way? They were looking for ways. They looked to find. They could not find. That means they were seeking by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude. Hindrances. Obstacles. Hurdles. Now children... The houses in the time of the Lord Jesus were a bit different than most of the houses that we know. Because maybe when you read this story, you thought, you know, climbing up on the roof. You know, if you did that today, and I'm sure your parents would not, not want that, that could be very dangerous. You'd have to take a ladder, and then our houses have pitched roofs, and you have to be very careful with that. But back in Bible times, they would often have flat roofs. That was, that was the norm. And in many houses, they would have a staircase made of mud brick stairs that would go to the top of the house. A lot of times in the cool of the night, for example, people would leave the house and they'd go to the, the top of the roof and they could sit there. It wasn't such a sturdy thing, but if you were careful, you could, you could do that, especially in some houses. So here in this house where the Lord Jesus is and where he's teaching, there's one of these staircases and maybe one of these men has an idea. You know, let's go up to the top of the roof. And so they take each their corner and they take this man up these stairs and there they go to the top of the roof. And they must have listened as best as they could. Where is the voice of Jesus coming from? Because ultimately when they let him down, he's right there in front of Jesus. So they're listening. Is he over there? Is he over there? How about here? And these roofs, children, they were not like our roofs with shingles and trusses and all the rest of this. They would usually make a roof really of branches, long branches with a lot of mud that would just be caked together and they would just form this, 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 this roof. It wasn't easy to take apart, but it wasn't impossible either. And so as these men are there on the top of the roof, they decide, okay, here's where we're going to make a hole. And they start pulling things apart. They start digging. And of course, this would have made for quite a mess in the house. Dirt would have been dropping down, maybe an occasional twig. But finally, they get a hole just big enough to let their friend down. What an amazing sight. What a lesson in persistence. These men weren't turned away. These men didn't come to the outskirts of the house and say, you know, listen, it's the wrong day. I guess it's not meant to be. I guess this isn't for us. No. These men meant business. In a sermon on this passage, Charles Spurgeon writes this. When four true hearts are set upon the spiritual good of a sinner, their holy hunger will break through stone walls or rooftops. If it is barred at the door, it will go through a window. If it cannot go through a window, it may dig underground. If it cannot dig underground, it will go up on the roof and dig tile after tile until the goal is reached and the sinner lies there before Jesus. That's what faith does. 
faith of the operation of God is something that is not content with earthly help or simply religious help. You know, there are people in life, they have certain limitations, certain inabilities, certain problems in life, and so they seek for counsel. And counsel is good, especially if you get it from the right source. But people often walk away with just a little bit of counsel. When in the end of the day, faith is not satisfied with that, it must have true help, soul help. It needs more than just religion, more than just earthly helpers. And so these men, and and this one man on the mat, they don't say, you know, I guess Jesus is not the answer. I guess we'll need to go maybe to some earthly physicians or to some doctors of the law. No. True faith is not content until it is at the feet of the Lord Jesus. But notice that true faith not only is not content with earthly help or religious, mere religious help, it is driven by great need. Faith is driven by great need. You see, congregation, the difference between these doctors of the law who are sitting in the house and this man who was outside the house was these doctors of the law. They had no need, no true need, sense of need at all. They were there to subject the Lord Jesus to their own critical thinking and hearing. There was no need burning in their soul for pardon, for peace, for fellowship with God. But this man and these men on the outside, they needed no one and nothing less than the Lord Jesus itself. And so it is every time where there is true faith, there is this sense of need. Sure, there may be ups and downs in the experience of that. Sometimes it may seem like that sense of need goes almost entirely away, but where the Lord is working savingly by His Holy Spirit, there will be this persistent need that nothing can satisfy other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And true faith, when it is operating in the soul, it becomes inventive, enterprising even, we could say. Because true faith will then not ultimately take no for an answer. You know the story of the Syrophoenician woman, who if anyone received a no in a certain sense from the Lord, it was her. Because the Lord Jesus, first he didn't answer her a word. But then when he did speak, he said, I am not come save for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that word not... N-O-T, I am not come except for Israel. That that could have been such a discouragement to this woman. It's as if the Lord himself says no to her. And yet where true faith is operating, it finds, as Luther has said, a yes hidden in an apparent no from God. Because as you know, that woman said, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And the Lord Jesus said to her, great is thy faith. You see, the Lord Jesus was testing her. Indeed. And even in this instance, the Lord Jesus, you might say in a certain sense, is testing these men. Is there that persistence Is there that sense of need that will not rest with anyone and anything besides the Lord himself? Even the dogs eat the crumbs. Friend, is that the logic of faith in your soul? I'm but a dog. I'm not a child. No, I'm not really belonging to Israel in that ideal sense of the word, but but a crumb from the master's table. Yes, I'm a dog, not deserving. But don't the dogs eat the crumbs? Scripture says, Christ says, Thy faith is great, be it unto thee 
as thou wilt. You see, congregation, true faith finds a way because the faith of the operation of God is something that needs the Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot do without him. Some of the old writers, they they compared it to a magnet. Children, have you ever seen, or maybe you have at home, a magnet? And um, something, especially if it's a big magnet. And you take something iron or something like it, and you put it close to to the magnet. Well, it goes right to the magnet. Is that now the power of the iron? No. No the power of the magnet and so too faith has no power in itself it, 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 it's empty of merit it, it's in a certain sense empty of all energy but the power lies with reverently speaking the magnet with the Lord Jesus Christ and it draws the sinner to the Savior Call his name Jesus, for he shall save sinners from their sin. And so it is in the case of these five men as well. They must have the Lord Jesus. And faith persists until this man comes at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And this brings us to our fourth scene. We've seen a scene of power, a scene of paralysis, a scene of persistence. Now we have a Scene of pardon. Notice in our text. Verse 19. They went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. Two simple words, but what a universe of significance. Before Jesus. Jesus. If you're a child of God here tonight, that's, that's it. That's what you want. That's what you need. To be there with all your misery, with all your sin, with all your confusion. But if you might be but before him. In that place where he sees and he knows And he has everything that your soul desires. Congregation, if a week of preparation is anything, it ought to be this. With all our sin that we find when we examine ourselves, that we cannot rest in anyone or anything except with all of that to be before the Lord Jesus under his gaze, near his heart, ready to receive all that he is and all that he says. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. And then there can be so many thoughts and they can multiply within you and you're not deserving and look at it all and there might be so many impulses in yourself that say, you know, I have to first clean up this and first have to do this before, but, but, but you run stuck with all of that because ultimately in the end of the day, can you be your own savior even in part? Even one percent. As Martin Luther said, if I had to stitch even one stitch of the garment of the robe of righteousness, if I was responsible for even one stitch, the whole thing would unravel. I need a complete Savior or none at all. I need Jesus. And so he comes there before Jesus In congregation, what flows from the mouth of the Lord Jesus is just so precious. Son or man, thy sins be forgiven thee. The Lord addresses this man so very personally, doesn't he? It's a personal pardon. Man, he saw him there. A specimen of humanity 
in all his weakness, with all his limitations, and yet as his image bearer who was made in the image of God, man, thy sins personally be forgiven thee. But notice, secondly, it's an authoritative pardon. He, he doesn't say here, you know, man, your, your biggest problem is your sin, and, and something needs to be done about that. I may have a solution. No. May it never be. Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. It's authoritative, or as he says later in our text, that the Son of Man, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, has power on earth to forgive sins. I say, this is authoritative. And that's what the sinner needs. Not some ifs, buts, or maybes. That does not satisfy. It's not just a personal and authoritative pardon, it's a happy pardon. You don't see this so much in this text, but in Matthew 9, verse 2, the same account, the same incident, the Lord Jesus says to this man, Son, be of good cheer. The Lord Jesus knew his condition. He knew his heart. He knew the misery that this man was in. He knew the discouragement that this man had faced so much of his life. He sees, he knows. Also you, my dear friend, that heavy burden of transgression, heavy laden, overborn, that confusion within. He knows all the emotions that we may feel and he says to this man and is connected to this declaration of pardon, be of good cheer. Is there anything happier when you hear from the lips of the Lord Jesus that your sins have been blotted out like a thick cloud and he remembers them no more and you hear that personal authoritative pardon from the lips of the Lord Jesus oh it gives such joy in your soul be of good cheer there's no cheer that the soul can taste or know than, than that but notice how it's not just a personal and authoritative and a happy pardon. It's a substitutionary pardon because though that is not stated here, for this man to be pardoned, the Lord Jesus would have to bear his sins. You see, the Lord Jesus cannot simply release someone from the burden of transgression, from the curse of sin, the guilt of sin, without himself paying for that sin and so in the Lord Jesus Christ with this man right in front of him when he releases him from that burden when he cancels out that debt when he pardons his transgression in that very moment he is taking upon himself the burden of this man's sins the punishment due to that sin actually I say that wrongly not in that very moment he did it from all eternity in the volume of the book it is written of me but he does it in this moment here as he extends forgiveness to this man. Authoritatively, he at the same time takes this man's sins to himself and says, as it were, I have found a ransom. I will pay your debt. You are set free, but the curse will rest upon me. What a wonder that this Lord Jesus Christ set his sights to go for sinners like this man, for sinners like you and like me. That he left the glories of the bosom of his Father to go all the way to Calvary in order that he might be made a curse. He might be made sin who knew no sin. That sinners like you and like me might be made the righteousness of God through and in him. Oh, sinner among us tonight, isn't this exactly what your soul needs? Why then? Why then are so many looking in all the wrong places, in works, in the law, in obedience to the law, in resolutions? I'll do better, I'll try harder. In rituals, rites, all sorts of things. Friends, it's in Christ. Listen, thy sins be forgiven thee. You see, congregation, 
as bad as these Pharisees were, and we'll get to that, accusing the Lord Jesus of blasphemy, they had one thing right. And it was that if this was some mere human being who was somehow extending forgiveness to this man, that is blasphemy. No mere human man can do that. But of course they were caviling and of course they were not seeing what they should have seen. That here before them was someone far greater, far more majestic, far more powerful than any mere human being. This was none other than the Son of God, the Son of Man promised in the Old Testament come in the fullness of time. And the Lord Jesus Christ defends this man by taking up his cause. You see, when these Pharisees became busy with accusing the Lord Jesus Christ, they in effect also with respect to that man, they really took away, or they sought to take away the ground of his assurance. They questioned the Lord Jesus Christ and his right to give this pardon. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ didn't leave this man over to fend for himself to defend himself. No, the Lord Jesus Christ immediately took up his cause and he'll do that every time his work is questioned. And so if you are here today and Satan is questioning God's work in your soul, Satan, or, or maybe your own heart, is doubting what the Lord has done because you see the same spirit that lived in these doctors of the law that's very much in you and in me. It needs to die. It needs to be killed. Anything that questions the Lord, anything that cavils with the Lord, it needs to die. But the Lord Jesus stands up and defends his own honor, but also defends this his child and makes clear in the verses that follow that he has come not only with pardon, but he has come with proof. As we see, fifthly, a scene of proof. You see, congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ is not only seen the faith of this man and his friends, but he's also seen into the hearts of the Pharisees. And let's just stop with that a moment. If you are here today and you may be very upstanding, you may be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, you may know your doctrine inside and out, you may have come tonight even as a spectator to check everything out, to make sure that things were said exactly the right way, the way you believe they need to be said. Oh, my friend, there's plenty of faults you can find in me and many of God's servants, but watch. Watch, my friend. There will be many in that day that will say, Lord, Lord. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. They were just spectators. Ultimately, in the end of the day, they may have done many mighty works. They made many boasts. And yet, in the end of the day, the great question is, are you his? Have you fallen at his feet? Have you come before him? Have you needed? Have you cried for mercy? And have you obtained mercy from the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world? The Lord Jesus Christ not only defends this man, but he proves his authority even to these scribes and Pharisees because he sees their heart. He sees their unbelief. He sees all that dwells within. And he says that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto the sick of the palsy, rise up and walk. There's two things I want you to see here. First of all, the Lord does no half work. It's an important lesson here. The Lord Jesus Christ does not just forgive his sins and then leave him to fend for himself the rest of his day. You see, the Lord does not only justify, but he also sanctifies. We need that whole Christ. He turns back the curse. He grants his pardon and he imputes his righteousness, but he also, wherever he does that, he also sanctifies, he restores. He gives strength, he gives new life, he gives his life 
And this man experienced both of these things. He understood and he heard that declaration of pardon, but he also felt, he felt that power in his limbs upon the word of the Lord Jesus. Christ is made unto us, the Bible says, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, a full salvation. And so those people who simply want pardon from the Lord, but they want to go on with their life, they want to live their own life, my friend, it cannot be. You must have a whole Christ. And you must want a whole Christ, a Christ who justifies and a Christ who sanctifies. That's, that's one lesson that the Lord proves here. But the second thing that he proves here is that he has power on earth to forgive sins. And I want us to notice that word on earth. You see, sometimes people have the question, but can it be for me? Can this pardon be for me? My friend, if that's truly your question, I want you to look at these two words, on earth. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has power on earth to forgive sins. If you are on the earth, the Lord has power to forgive sins of a sinner like you. As long as you are on the earth, you're not yet in eternity. You're not yet in hell, but you're on the earth. Take these words back to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, thou hast power on earth to forgive sins. And I'm such a sinner here on the earth. I cling to the earth. I, I love the things of the earth. I'm so bound to this earth, but I need thee, and I need thy power. I need thy authority. I need thy pardon. I need thy life. Oh, my friend, take then these words and turn them into a plea. Because what will happen here, Lord willing, if the Lord spares us and we live, what will happen here this coming Lord's Day is the Son of Man will be present here with the tokens of his suffering and of his death, with that blessing ready to hand out to rebels, all of them. Every single one around this table will be a rebel in and of themselves. But they will have tasted and they will have known what it is on earth. The Son of Man has power to forgive also my sin. He redeems my life from destruction. He pardons all mine iniquities. He renews my youth as the eagles. Oh, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. And that's what this man did. Just very briefly, final, final point, a scene of praise. This man glorified God. And the people all around him glorified God and they were filled with fear. That means with awe, with, with respect and reverence for this Son of Man who had authority to turn back the curse and to extend his blessing also to this paralyzed man in such a remarkable way. And they said, we have seen strange things today. Strange things. A roof was broken up. That's strange. Men, they went all the way to the roof. They broke it up, let down. Strange things. But you know what is stranger yet? That the Son of God, the Son of Man, would pronounce pardon and life to sinners. Who would have thought that out? Has it entered into the heart of man to conceive what God has thought out in all eternity. And this is all to humble us. This is all to make us small. This is all for all eternity. And may it begin here to wonder at what a glorious God this is. I can't fathom it. Who has been his counselor? Who has first said to him to do this? We've seen strange things today. I pray, God, that by His grace, 
You would see strange things in this biblical sense of the word. Sinners flying to the Lord Jesus Christ, needing him, even if it means taking the roof off, spiritually speaking, until I lie at the feet of the Lord Jesus. You know, that's, that's a wonderfully strange thing. Oh, that God would give that. That we would see seasons of reviving and awakening once again in which sinners would have to come to Christ no matter what's in the way, no matter what the hindrance, no matter what the impediment. Give me Jesus or else I die. And then the strange thing that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, the strangest thing, the most glorious thing. Oh, to praise him as we ought. May the Lord give that all to his praise and all to his glory alone. Amen. Let us pray. Glorious and merciful Lord God of heaven and of earth, we pray thee that faith would break through even in this evening hour. Oh, to be at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Despite all the impediments within and without, and to hear those marvelous words, man, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. Take up thy bed, go thy way, go to thy house, and then blessing God from the heart. Lord, may that be so, even this very night and throughout the rest of this week, wilt thou help all those who are bowed down, heavy laden, grant them this perspective, if I may but be at the feet of the Lord Jesus, and then not to rest until we taste and see that the Lord is good and gracious. Bless thy servant, Lord, in this place. Bless him in the administration of the sacrament. Bless him from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, and his dear wife at his side. Bless the elders and the deacons. Lord, use thy word mightily the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan and the building up of the kingdom of Christ. May many sinners be saved. May thy saints be edified. May those doctors of the law, those Pharisees, those scribes, Lord, who think they know it all so well, may they lose it all to go lost at thy feet and to find also a ready and a willing Savior to save beggars to the uttermost, all who come unto God by him seeing he ever lives to make intercession for sinners. Bless us so, Lord, we pray, and receive our thanks and praise, and all for Jesus' sake alone. Amen.